And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. Holy Father, our nation this morning is in deep trouble because you are angry with us as a people. We are seeing lived out what you promised would happen when a nation would forsake you. That when we refuse to acknowledge you as the creator worthy of praise and thanks, that you give us over to sensuality. And when you did that, we refused to repent, so you gave us over, your word says, to homosexuality. And we've refused to repent. And so just as you promised, your wrath that is being revealed today, you've given us as a people over to a depraved mind to do those things that are not proper. Father, we know the problem in our nation this morning is a sin problem, it's a rebellion problem. And we recognize that people, Democrats, Republicans, liberals, conservatives, many have been heartbroken over the events of these days to see such terrible injustice upon a man begging for his life. But you are faithful. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever, and you told us to expect these days, that these days would come upon us. And so may we not be shaken as your people, but more fixed in our hearts and minds to do that which you've called us. Help us to be stewards of the gospel. We know when we meet you in heaven, there'll be no evangelism there. And we know the most loving thing that we can do is to share the good news with someone who is lost. So help us to do that. Thank you for the unique congregation that we enjoy, people of many races and nationalities that come together who love each other because the love of Christ has been poured out in our hearts. And we know on this day of simplistic fake Christianity where men have a form of godliness but they've denied its power, that there are many deep-rooted problems in local assemblies. But help us to keep our focus on you, the author and finisher of our faith. Thank you for the prophet Elijah who lived in difficult, dark days and how you used him in a mighty way. May we learn from him this morning. We open our hearts before you and pray, O oh God, that you would speak to us from your word, your infallible, inerrant word. Give us minds to grasp the truth that is here. May the Spirit, our teacher, illumine what he has written. And may we be more than those who just hear God's word, but those who apply. So come help me, fill me and anoint me, and speak through me. I ask it in Jesus' holy and precious name. 
Amen. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to 1 King chapter 18. If you're new to the Bible, just find the Psalms. It's about dead center and scan to the left. And before long, you'll hit 1 Kings. It's right between 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Chronicles. You can hardly miss it. Now, if you're joining us for the first time, we've recently completed a nearly three-year study of the book of Revelation. But now we are in a study on the life and times of Elijah the prophet. And this is the fourth of what I think will be probably 10 messages on this great man of God. And you can see this morning, the topic is Elijah, the prayer warrior. Now, when we study Elijah's life, we must never forget what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. That includes Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, and yes, indeed, 1 Kings. Remember, the book of 1 Kings is not simply a record of what God has said. It's a record of what God is saying. And sometimes as Christians, we mistakenly think that the Old Testament is for another era, that it's for another people. And we could not be further from the truth. Paul said to the church of Rome, for whatever was written in earlier times, you see those words, earlier times? That's what we refer to as the Tanakh, that is the Old Testament. One of my commitments from this pulpit is to teach the whole council of Scripture. And so usually we do a New Testament study. Right now we're doing an Old Testament study, then a New Testament study, then an Old Testament study. Because the whole of Scripture is instructive. So he goes for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. The earlier times, again, is this old covenant, Old Testament error. And he's reminding us that the instruction and the application of the Old Testament did not exhaust itself in that time frame. In other words, the Holy Spirit of God moved upon the writers of the Old Testament, not just for the people of their day, but for the people of our day. And may I remind you that Elijah belonged certainly to an elite group of prophets, and he was one of the few men of God in the Old Testament that God did the miraculous through. Most of the great men, most of the prophets never did a miracle in their entire lives. It's just on the great ganglions of biblical history that God performed miracles through Moses, through Joshua, hundreds of years went by, then through Elijah, then his protege, Elisha, and then until, not again until the time of Christ. And so we look at this, and he's an incredible man, but remember, this was written for our instruction. And I believe God wants to teach us from Elijah's life about how he prayed so that we can apply it to our lives today. And I believe with all my heart that Community Bible Church is no better than what we are as a church through prayer. We're no greater, no more useful to God than what we are by prayer. And a prayer life of a church is made up of its individual members. So don't ask the question, is CBC a praying church? Ask the question, am I a praying member of that church? Now, let me ask you a question. If you could ask the Lord Jesus for something today, what would you ask him for in the spiritual realm? Would you ask him to make you a better Bible teacher, maybe a greater evangelist, maybe a better servant, maybe a better giver? Well, on one occasion, the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. 
And he responded with an undeniable promise about asking and seeking and knocking. He said this in Matthew 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks it will be opened. When you ask, that speaks of your desire. When you seek, that speaks of your direction. But when you knock, that speaks of your determination. And God wants to bring together our asking and our seeking with determination. And what we find here in 1 Kings 18 is a man who is determined to pray. He was a man who walked with God. And there are many lessons that we can learn from his life. He's a gutsy kind of guy. I look forward to meeting Elijah. What a profound impact he had on his nation. So if you were to ask yourself, what biblical character would I like to model my life after? Whom would you choose? Apart from the Lord Jesus, of course. I doubt few Christians today would choose the prophet Elijah. They'd reason, well, he was a mighty prophet of God, and I certainly am not. He was a mighty worker of miracles, and I certainly am not. He had the the mantle of supernaturalism all over his life, and I certainly do not. He's in another league all by himself. And yet we noted last time that James, James, remember, was nicknamed, as the church fathers tell us, old camel knees. That is, he spent so much time on his knees like a camel, they were calloused. And when the Holy Spirit of God gives him a letter to write the book of James in the New Testament, when he wants to choose someone to illustrate the greatness of a prayer life, he chooses Elijah the prophet. Why did he choose Elijah? Listen to his own words from James chapter 5. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So when the Holy Spirit inspires the apostle James to describe Elijah the prophet, he doesn't say here, Elijah was a mighty prophet of God and he prayed, or Elijah was a miracle worker and he prayed, or Elijah was a a model that no man could match and he prayed. No, he says Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. The ISV renders it, Elijah was a man just like us. The Net Bible says Elijah was a human being like us. The old King James says Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. He was a normal, everyday human being cut out of the same piece of cloth that you are made from. He had problems. He had perplexities. He had fears. He had doubts. He had frustrations. But what made him uniquely different was that he was a man who knew how to pray. And so the epistle of James is explicitly teaching us that if Elijah is a man of like passions, then we, like Elijah, can learn to pray like he prayed. And in our passage this morning, we have an illustration of fervent, earnest prayer. And there's some timeless lessons that we can learn today. Now, the setting, if you're new, is right after his confrontation with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of the Asherah. That's over up there on the top of Mount Carmel. 
And we left off last time, if you're with me, in verse 40. But to help us to get a running start, I want to begin reading in verse 36. 1 Kings 18, beginning in verse 36, follow along in your Bibles. At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and you have turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. Then Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. Now Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of the roar of a heavy shower. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he crouched down on the earth and put his face between his knees. He said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And he said, go back seven times. It came about at the seventh time that he said, Behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand is coming up from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down so that the heavy shower does not stop you. And a little while the sky grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy shower, and Ahab robed and went to Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And he girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. Now, if you're using the note-taking outline provided there at our website, I want you to observe this morning three characteristics of Elijah's prayer life, which I hope God will weave into your life and to mine. First, I want you to note from verses 41 and verse 42, the passion of his prayer. When Elijah prayed, he prayed a passionate prayer and earnest prayer. God explicitly tells us in James 5.17 that that is the kind of prayer that he prayed. So when James says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much, he illustrates it with Elijah the prophet. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly. Quite literally, if you have the New American Standard, which I think is one of the most precise and accurate translations of the English Bible, I prepare every week in the original languages, and I think there's not a better translation that's available to us. But if you look out in the margin of the NASB, you will notice it literally reads, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed in his prayers. I like that. He prayed in his prayers. You see, some of us pray, but we don't really pray because we do not really pray in our prayers. We don't pray earnestly. We pray take it or leave it kind of prayers. We mouth words, but our hearts are far away. All of us at some point are guilty of those kinds of prayer. But for some people, that's the pattern 
of their prayer lives. So how do you see God change that? How does God develop a passion and an earnestness in prayer? Well, first I want you to see the root, the root of his passion. Point A there on your outline, the root of his passion. Notice, if you will now, verse 41. Now Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of the roar of a heavy shower. That, my friend, is an incredibly confident statement that he makes here to King Ahab. Elijah said, go up, eat, and drink. Isn't that interesting? Go up, eat, and drink. He doesn't tell him to repent. Why? Because he knows the man's heart. He knows that he is wicked. He knows that he is no doubt probably confirmed in his unbelief. So he says, go up and celebrate, Ahab, because this drought that is going on for three and a half years is about to end. Now, how did he know that? Well, according to verse 43 of our text this morning, there's not a cloud in the sky. And yet he just confidently said, there is the sound of the roar of a heavy shower. And so the curious, thoughtful reader of Scripture cannot help but ask, how can he make that statement if there's not a cloud in the sky? For the simple reason that the ear of faith recognizes things that you cannot see. He had a promise that he was clinging to. Remember Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You see, the ear of faith hears what God has promised. And so I want you to see that there's a relationship between what God promised and the passion that this man had in prayer. If you turn back in your Bible or it's on the same page in mine, the next page over, look at verse 40, uh, chapter 18 and verse 1. Look at chapter 18 and verse 1. Now, it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the face of the earth. God specifically says, I will send rain. Well, if God promised to send rain, then why in verse 42 is he crouched down before God in prayer? I mean, why pray at all? You mark it down big and plain and clear this morning that the vehicle of faith that translates God's promises into reality is prayer. Let me say that again. The vehicle of faith that translates the promises of God into reality is prayer. God not only ordains the end, God ordains the means. And that's a principle that runs all the way through both testaments of Scripture. Elijah is assured by God in verse 1. God says, I will send rain on the face of the earth. And yet he goes to God in prayer. It's very much like this statement that Jesus makes at the end of the Bible in Revelation 22:20, where he says, yes, I am coming quickly. And then all the inhabitants of heaven say, amen, even so come, Lord Jesus. And yet God promised through the prophet Isaiah as well, there's coming a day when the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And yet, while God makes this promise through Isaiah and a number of prophets, and the Lord Jesus himself states it at the end of the revelation, he taught us to pray, your kingdom come, 
Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The promise that Isaiah gave that is of a coming kingdom, literally, physically, actually on the earth, Jesus taught us to pray for that kingdom, and yet God says it's going to happen. He promises it. And so as seen in Elijah's case, God has promised for rain, but he wants Elijah the prophet to pray earnestly for it to happen. God wants us to take the promises that he has made and to turn those promises into prayers that they might come to pass. And so when you have a promise from God, prayer is not a a question of coming to God to try to convince him or to beg him or to somehow change his mind. It is something that he says he is going to do, but it needs to be claimed through prayer. We sing standing on the promises. Maybe we should sing kneeling on the promises of God. And really the root of any man or woman that you will find that is passionate and earnest in prayer is a man or a woman of God who knows the promises of God. Now, do you know why some are just dull and apathetic and ineffective in their prayer life? For the simple reason for many is they do not know their Bible and they do not know the promises that God has made. Now, it's difficult to say exactly how many promises God has made to the New Testament church. There's all these promise books that have come out for decades, and usually they number somewhere between 5,500 and 7,500 promises. But most of them, and the reason for the variance in the numbers is because a lot of the so-called promises that they are making have nothing to do with us. There are universal promises of God in prayer that apply for all of God's people in any age. But then there are promises that apply to a specific audience or to a specific person during a specific time. Now, I don't know exactly how many promises there are in the Bible, and I don't care to count them all up as somebody has done with several of these books, but I do know this, and by studying the Word of God in over 40 years, that there are thousands of promises for God's people. With that said, we can't claim all of them. For instance, take Deuteronomy 29 and verse 5, that your sandals and clothes will not wear out. Let me read that. God said to Israel, to the people of Israel, I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandal has not worn out on your foot. In fact, Deuteronomy 8.4 says their feet wouldn't even swell. Major question. Is this a promise? that if I have enough faith that somehow I can claim it, it's listed in most of the promise books. The fact is, it's not even a promise. It's just a statement of fact that God was going to do this for the people of Israel, period. But secondly, contextually, this statement was clearly made to the Hebrew people for a specific time frame, namely the years of wandering, 40 years in the wilderness, and it didn't apply when they got into the promised land, just for the time in the desert. Now, not all the promises found in the Bible are for you and for me to claim. For instance, could a, uh, a drought-plagued farmer take 1 Kings 18.1 and say, I'm going to believe God to send me rain. Here it is. You can't just open your Bible and stab your finger on some promise and say it's yours to claim. So how do we know which promises of God's Word to claim? I've met a lot of Christians who are very careless in their study and in their interpretation of Holy Scripture. Christians across the board 
teach us that all the promises are for you and me to be claimed. And that's where the whole prosperity theology gospel comes from. Poor, sloppy, unfaithful, distorted exegesis of Scripture. Now, I'm sure there are some solid promise books out there. I just haven't found one yet. So if you found a good one that is contextually and historically accurate as it relates to the church, let me know because I've yet to see one. In either case, if you don't know how to claim a promise, you can become disillusioned or discouraged when you're trying to claim a promise and God doesn't seemingly respond. So let me share with you three guidelines that I think you must consider when you go to God in prayer if you're going to rightly divide the word of truth. First, number one, you must determine if the promise is personal or universal in scope. Is the promise personal or universal in scope? Now, some promises are meant for a particular individual or to a group of individuals, and they are meant for those people alone. For instance, God told Joshua that he wanted him to capture the city of Jericho, and once a day for six days, they were to march around the walls of Jericho, and then on the seventh day, they were to march around that wall seven times, blast the trumpets, and God promised he would just crumble the walls. Now, if you're a Christian military officer, I don't recommend that that's a promise for you to claim. Don't try to apply this strategy in overtaking the city because it's not yours to claim. That was not a universal promise. That was a specific promise. Or take another example, Mark 16 and verse 18. There Jesus said, they will pick up serpents and they will drink any, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Now, some Christians have tried to claim either a portion of that verse. Most are inconsistent. Occasionally, you'll find one who will try to claim the whole verse. For instance, let me quote from a Tennessee newspaper. The title of the article was, Two Preachers Die in a Test of Faith. Two preachers who had survived the bites of poisonous snakes tested their faith with with strychnine and died a few hours after drinking the poison. Code County officers said the copperheads and the rattlesnakes were handled at the religious service on Saturday night. After the snakes had been handled, Mr. Williams and Mr. Pack drank strychnine as a further test of faith based on a passage in the Bible which they called a promise they believed. Both died shortly thereafter. Friends, it can be dangerous to claim some passages out of context, but even the casual reader of Scripture would know that Mark 16, 18 has a conditional clause to it. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. It was a promise given to the apostles when persecuted and forced to the, do these things that God would protect them supernaturally. It does not warrant your handling snakes or trying to drink poison. And by the way, this is never modeled as something we should do in the book of Acts, nor is it ever commanded in any of the epistles. Why? Because when you let Scripture interpret Scripture and you read the other synoptic gospels and put it together with Mark 16, clearly it was a promise given to the apostles. 2 Corinthians 12.12 tells us that not everyone can do signs, wonders, and miracles. There were certain signs, wonders, and miracles that authenticated a man to be chosen by Jesus to be one of his apostles. 
Uh, a good example of this kind of being lived out was Paul. Remember, he was shipwrecked on the island of Malta, and uh, they were there, and uh, uh, a viper, a snake, crawled out of the fire and bit Paul in the hand, and he was unharmed. Here he is. He's, he's sharing in the love of God and warning people of God's care, and he takes a terrible experience, and he turns it upside down, and that's the perspective we need as Christians. When we are in dire times and difficult, we don't need to moan and groan and weep and, and, and just get all self-centered. We need to preach the gospel because that's the answer to the trouble in America. And so when you claim a promise, you have to determine, one, is the promise personal or is the promise universal in scope? Here's a universal promise that Jesus gave. Come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, there's a second principle I want us to consider when we try to claim a promise. We must also ask, is the promise conditional? For instance, here's a conditional promise that God gave to the Jewish people in Exodus 15, 26. Let me read it to you. And he said, if you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God... And do what is right in his sight, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. Now, that's not a universal promise. It's one given to the people of Israel, and contextually, it's time-bound again to the period of the wandering. But its fulfillment is conditioned on their obeying what God says. Now, there are other conditional promises that are universal in scope, that God will only answer if you meet the conditions. For instance, most of you know maybe 1 John 1, 9. It says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is a universal promise, and by universal, contextually, of course, he's writing to the little ones who have come to faith in Jesus. It's a conditional, universal promise given to born-again people. And by the way, 1 John 1.9 is not a salvation verse used out of context by many pastors and evangelists. Listen, if all you had to do was confess your sin and God would forgive you, and that's what a lot of people think, you ask them, why should God let you into heaven? I've been sorry for my sin, and I've asked God to forgive me. Jesus could say, my Father is forgiving. Just be sorry, ask for forgiveness, and he'll forgive you. Could have skipped the cross and ascended right into heaven. But that's not what he does. God has to have a basis a just basis by which he can shower forgiveness on you. And so if you have come to faith through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, what the Bible calls the gospel, the power of God to save you, and then as a saved person, you acknowledge your sin, then not your relationship, which is eternal, but your fellowship with God is restored. Let's consider another principle. In addition, is the promise universal in scope? Or is the promise conditional in nature? That is to say, is there something I must do? A third guideline we must consider when claiming a promise is the promise qualified by another passage of Scripture. Is the promise qualified by other Scripture? For instance, take John 14 and verse 13. Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, 
that I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Whatever. That's what he says. Okay, Lord, let me win publisher's sweepstake. No, that, that promise is further qualified by a verse like 1 John 5.14, which says, this is the confidence we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So the whatever you ask in Jesus' name is qualified by the will of God for your life, and then it can be answered. Though that those two promises are further qualified by verses like Matthew 21:22. Let me read what Jesus said there. In all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Now maybe you're thinking, well, I asked for something in Jesus' name. I knew it was according to the will of God because God said explicitly in his word it was his will. And I asked in faith, believing, and he still didn't answer. That's because those three promises are further qualified by verses like 1 Peter 3, 7 or Psalm 66, 18. Let me read 1 Peter 3 uh, in verse 7 to you. Peter exhorts husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Now, men, while your wife may be the weaker vessel and that she physically is not capable of doing some of the same things that most men can do, she still has an upper hand on you because the rest of the verse says that you are to live with your wives in an understanding way. Peter gives us three reasons why we need to live with our wives in an understanding way. First, number one, since she's a woman. You're partakers of one another. She's your helpmate. She's your completer. She shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Your partners. Eve was not created from the foot bone or from the... She was created from Adam's side, out of Adam's rib. But second, he tells us we are to live with our wives in an understanding way. Why? Because she's a fellow heir of the grace of life. Not only are we partners, we are equals in the sense that both of us are saved by the grace of God. But there's a third, maybe the capstone reason here in this context anyway, for living with her in an understanding way. Notice, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Now, men, we can ask in faith, we can ask in Jesus' name, we can ask believing, but if you're dumping on your wife, don't expect God to answer. The same principle is given in Psalm 66, 18. If I regard wickedness, not if I sin, but if I regard, if I cling to, if I cherish wickedness, sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear. And that's why James He's writing to saved people, and in James 5.16, he says, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. Understand, he's not talking about positional righteousness. The day you were saved, God credited you. He gave you what we call imputed righteousness. You have the righteousness of God in Christ. He's not speaking of imputed positional righteousness. He's speaking of practical righteousness, of someone who's walking in purity of heart with God. And friends, it can be exciting to pray when God has given you a promise that you can personally claim. It will put a passion, it will put a fervor 
And so God said to Elijah here in our text, go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the face of the earth. And he passionately claims that promise from God. Now, in addition to the root of, the prom- of his passion, I want you to see the fruit of his passion. Point B, if you've downloaded the outline there at communitybiblechurch.us, the fruit of his passion. And there are two truths that jump out at me here in verses 42 to 44 that will typically characterize passionate prayer. And remember, it's passionate prayer that pleases God because he says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. Now, first notice the place of his prayer because Elijah separates himself from the others in order to pray. Look at verse 42. So Ahab went up to eat and drink. Elijah, again, he could read the heart of this wicked man. He had just preached a sermon against idolatry filled with beautiful illustrations, namely fire coming down from heaven. But there is no conviction, no remorse like the rest of the people of Israel had. It doesn't lead him to repentance. So what's he going to do? He's going to go up and eat and drink. Why? Because he's ruled by the flesh. Ahab cares about nothing but Ahab. And his focus, after what should have brought him on his face before God and said, oh, I'm a sinful man, Elijah. How do I get right with God? No. He goes off to feed his face. King Ahab is like a lot of people who come to church. Their bodies are here. But their heart and their minds are a million miles away. In fact, your spiritual state very often can be seen by what you think about during church. And where you rush off to immediately when it's over. Some people cannot sit for a one-hour sermon from the Word of God, but they can go to a ball game or a race and sit there for hours on the end. Many times a pastor opens up the Word of God and he preaches about sin and they're just unmoved. They think it's for someone else, but it has nothing to do with them. Verse 42, so Ahab went up to eat and drink. But Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, or Carmel, if you prefer, and he crouched down on the earth, and his face was between his knees. Now, here's a picture of Mount Carmel. This is uh, about uh, two-thirds of the way up. Some of you have been here. You've been at the top. You can't make it out, probably. There's a little white building up there at the very top, just there on the horizon, And most of you have seen it from the top. This is the other side, a picture taken. And if you go all the way to the bottom of the hill, the very brook that's mentioned in the text you can see. And if you're on the top of the hill and you look over the other side of that mountain, you can see the Mediterranean Sea. It's a beautiful place. It's a secluded place. And it's a place where Elijah wants to go and pray. Now, Elijah had not eaten or drinking all day. But this spiritual giant of a man, like Jesus, he said, I have food that you don't know about. His food was to do the will of God, and he was there for a reason. The mediocre believer often has needs and desires of the flesh that they want to feed first, and their spiritual desires are weak and fledging unlike this spiritual giant who wanted to be alone with God. He had a place to meet God. And don't underestimate the need for a place. Now, I know you can pray anytime, anywhere. 
God commands you to pray without ceasing. But he also underscores in a number of illustrations and through the instruction of Christ himself that a place is important as well, a quiet, secluded place. Now, I can pray sitting in my car while in traffic with my eyes open, and I should do that. That's part of God's commands. But there are times when it needs to be secluded. There are times my wife and I have spoken, you know, all the kids are everywhere, the grandkids are everywhere. And then there are times when it's just her and me, and she says, I need you to listen. Do you have a quiet place like that, a place just for you and God to meet? If you don't have a place like that, if there's not a place in your home or your office, wherever it might be that you've carved out to meet God, you are missing out greatly. While you're here, turn over to Matthew 6. Don't lose your place. Go to the first book in the New Testament. It's the Gospel of Matthew. And turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 6. Jesus is standing on the upper side of a hill, and so we call it the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, if you know the sermon, Jesus gives a sketch of kingdom righteousness, what it looks like for someone who is a member of his kingdom. And he does so by giving six illustrations through the sermon, and he uses the repeated formula all the way. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And the whole verse that unlocks the entire sermon is Matthew 5 and verse 20. Let me read it to you. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, who were considered like the most religious hoi polloi of the day, unless it surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so in this sermon, Jesus contrasts Pharisaical righteousness with true saving righteousness that God gives to the believer by grace, a kind of righteousness that changes you from the inside out. You see, pharisaical righteousness was external, it was earned, it was merited, where God's righteousness is internal and it's given as a gift by grace. Theirs had to do with doing. God's primarily has to do with being that results in the right kind of doing. Their righteousness involved external acts only, where God's righteousness involves attitudes that accompany those acts. And so to contrast the two forms of righteousness, he gives a number of illustrations. For instance, look at Matthew 6 in verse 5. He points here to the subject of prayer. Let me read it to you. When you pray... You are not to be like the hypocrites, the play actors, talking about the Pharisees. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Now, notice in verse 5, Jesus said they love to stand and pray. And you might want to underline that word love in your Bibles, agapao. It's a willful kind of love, not the kind of love that is used in other contexts of God's love. You see, the problem is that they do not love prayer, nor the God to whom they're supposed to be praying. What they do love is the praise of men, the public affirmation that their kind of prayer gives. Now, there's nothing wrong, by the way, with standing when you pray. There are several instances in Scripture 
when God's people stand and pray. In fact, for the Jew and for the Christian in the early church, it was usually standing in prayer, and that's when they lifted their hands, not when they got some feeling out of a song. I'm not speaking against that. But that was the context of lifting holy hands to God in the context of prayer. Now, there's nothing wrong with standing, and there's nothing wrong with praying in the synagogue with God's people. For that matter, there's nothing wrong with praying on the street corners. To carry your prayer from the secluded realm of the people of God into a public secular realm, there's no prohibition against that in Scripture, and there are many illustrations of it. In fact, in the book of Acts, you see many illustrations of public prayer, and even in the model prayer that Jesus has just taught. He says, when you pray, our Father, not my Father, but our Father, there is an implication there that this is a corporate time of prayer that the people of God, you know, express to the living God. So Jesus is uncovering here the motive behind Pharisaical prayer. These men who love to stand in the synagogue or in a prayer meeting or on the street corner or in a restaurant, why? To be seen by men. So behind their prayer lurked a sense of deep pride. They just wanted to be seen by men. And Jesus said, yep, they've got their reward in full. That is the praise that men will give them. And Christians today sometimes do the same thing. They try to impress others by the way they pray, or sometimes they're giving a sermon in their prayer, like they're, who are you talking to, God or to us? And they teach in their prayer. And I hope you know that when you are praying to be seen by men, it's insulting to God. So beginning in verse 6, Jesus begins with a contrast. Circle that little three-letter word, but. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Look, the real test of your prayer life is not what you do in a public Wednesday night prayer meeting or in your adult Bible fellowship, but what you do all alone, just you and God. And so the Pharisee didn't go to the synagogue to worship God, but to build his reputation before men. Now, please understand the giving of alms, the, the giving of praise and prayer, the giving of oneself and fasting. There's three public expressions for all of those in the New Testament. But hypocrisy is when there's an ulterior motive in fasting and praying or giving to be seen by men. And when you do that, you're just nothing more than a religious exhibitionist, and it's sickening to God. I mean, how can we pretend that we are praising God when in reality we're just seeking the praise of people. Jesus calls that hypocrisy. It's play acting. The word literally means a play actor. So is your public prayer legitimate? Ask yourself, well, what's my private prayer life like? Look, if, if you come here on a Wednesday night and you pray and you haven't been alone with God that day or since the last Wednesday night, in prayer. It's sheer hypocrisy. And so the real test is not what you do in public, but what you do in private. And so Jesus said, go into your inner room, tarmeon. It's a Greek word that is used of a secret room, of a storehouse, a private room. Go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who's in secret. 
I hope you have a place like that to be alone with God. Maybe it's in your home. Maybe it's in your office. Maybe it's in your car during your lunch hour where you can close out the whole world with all of its distractions, a place to shut out the onlooking eyes of men and to shut yourself into the presence of God. Jesus said, here you are to pray to your Father who's in secret. Why? Because he's wanting, he's waiting to welcome you. And there's nothing that destroys prayer sometimes like human spectators. And there's nothing that enriches prayer when you're alone with God and you're there in his presence and you know it. God sees not just the outward, he sees the heart. He sees not just the one who is praying, he sees the motive for which we are praying. So my point here back in 1 Kings 18 is that we need, go back there if you will, we need a place to pray. So here in 1 Kings 18, the fruit of Elijah's passion is important, not only as we consider the place of his prayer, but also the posture of his prayer. Look now at verse 42. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he crouched down on the earth and put his face between his knees. Now, the Bible here mentions his posture, not because this is necessarily a pattern that we must strictly follow, but I believe that God highlights it here with this man's effectual fervent prayer that James illustrates from, because his posture displays the inward reality of his earnestness. I mean, how earnest and passionate can you be in prayer when you're just laying down in bed? You could be, but you're half asleep sometimes. Are you more earnest in your prayer when you're in a prayer closet and you're in your face before God or when you're just driving down the road? You could be just as earnest driving down the road, but typically, typically, the posture of your prayer is an expression of the earnestness of your heart. Do you remember the Lord Jesus there in the Garden of Gethsemane? In Mark's Gospel, the 14th chapter, it says that he fell to the ground. Luke reminds us he knelt down. And Matthew elaborates further, he fell on his face and prayed. God the Son prostrated himself before God the Father. And he cried out, oh, my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. Have you ever wanted the will of God so passionately and earnestly that you are on your face before God? And very often, some Christians have never found themselves there because they are proud and self-sufficient. I am reminded of my need to pray in Mark 1.35. Let me read it to you. It says, now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he, Jesus, went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. Now, if you know your Gospels, there are 52 recorded days in the life of Christ. And Mark chapter 1 records the single most busiest day in the life of our Lord. It was a day full of miracles, healing, teaching, and preaching. And if you've ever sustained a public ministry of a sort, then you know how very exhausting that can be for an individual. And it was the next morning, even before the sun came up, after the single busiest recorded day in the life of Christ, that he got up to pray. Now, if that was Jesus' need, what is our need? 
Now, unfortunately, we think our need is just partial. But we need to see it is absolutely total. And so here in 1 Kings 18, Elijah recognizes his total need. He was crouched down, the text says, before God. He is in humility, and he's pleading with God for God to work. And that's what we need today. We need to see God work. And the work of God in the body of Christ amongst evangelicalism is not languishing because of a lack of divine power. It is languishing because of a lack of earnest, passionate prayer by God's people. And the longer I serve Christ in ministry, the more impressed I am by the subtlety of Satan. If I were the devil, I would not try to confuse in the trivial, I would try to confuse in the crucial areas. Satan doesn't mind if you evangelize, just as long as you don't pray. He recognizes that unless God moves in the heart of a person, a person who is blinded by what Paul calls the small God of this world, then nothing's going to happen. All your words are in vain. He recognizes that it is far more important for the preacher, for the church member, to talk to God about men ever before we talk to men about God. For that matter, Satan doesn't mind that you study the Bible just as long as you don't pray. And Bible study without prayer will never change you. It typically just leads to an awful case of spiritual pride. And it's one of the dangers of a lot of seminarians. They are filled with spiritual pride, but they're unchanged. Satan doesn't even mind that you are compulsively active in this church just as long as you don't pray. Why? Because it's work without genuine fruit. Samuel Chadwick, an English pastor over 100 years ago, penned these words, the one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Elijah was a man who earnestly and passionately prayed before God. Literally, he prayed in his prayers. Now, there's a second lesson I want us to grasp about Elijah this man who was a prayer warrior. Not just the passion of his prayer, but the persistence of his prayer. Notice first that his persistency is embedded first in his expectancy. Look at the expectancy of his prayer, starting now in verse 43. He said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. That's the Mediterranean Sea. You can see it from the top of that mountain, from the top of Mount Carmel. Go look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And he said, go back seven times. So six times Elijah sent his servant to the crest of the hill and he, and he asked him, what do you see? And each time he came back, he says, there's nothing. But now we read here in verse 44, it came about at the seventh time that he said, behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand is coming up from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down so that the heavy shower will not stop you. Now, the progression in this verse illustrates the expectancy and the persistency he had in prayer. Notice he crouched down. Picture it, his head is between his knees. 
And he looks up for a moment and he says to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And while his servant goes that short distance to the crest of the hill, he goes back in that crouched position. So he went up and looked and he said, there's nothing. So he continues to pray. He sends his servant out six times, and each time he comes back, he says, there's nothing. Then in verse 43, he tells us, Elijah said, go back seven times. Now follow the progression. Look at your text. We move from six reports of nothing in verse 43 to a cloud. I've got errors written in my Bible. To a cloud as small as a man's hand to prepare your chariot so it does not get stuck in verse 44. Then finally here in verse 45, to the sky that grew black with clouds and wind to the actual heavy shower. And between all the reports given to Elijah by his servant, while there was not a cloud in the sky, he could still say to Ahab, there is the sound of the roar of a heavy shower. Why? Because he's expecting God to work. Now, in addition to the expectancy in his prayer, I want you to observe the perseverance in his prayer, the perseverance in his prayer. Now, seven times he said, again, 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 again. And all the time, Elijah is praying. Now, most of us would have thrown in the towel long before this. Suppose Elijah quit praying on the sixth time. But no, an expectant persevering prayer with a promise to claim. He sends his, pro his servant each time to scan the skies because he's believing God to send the rain. Just remember, you expect nothing, you will get it every time. First Kings 18.1 is a promise. I will send rain. And so Elijah clings to that promise and he believes God by faith and he perseveres in prayer. Now, I can't read this text without thinking about Matthew 7, 7. So put out next to this verse, next to verse 43, just right out in the margin of your Bible, Matthew 7, 7. And let me read that verse of Scripture to you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Now, the three verbs, ask, seek, and knock, are a special present tense in the Greek New Testament. And when there's a critical nuance in the original language, this is where the New American Standard with footnotes are extremely helpful to you. It literally says, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, which tells me about the character of our Heavenly Father. He's never bothered. He always welcomes you. And as you can see in this verse, there's an intensification of the prayer. We go from asking to seeking to knocking. He instructs us first in prayer that we must ask. That expresses our desire, our wish our, before the Lord. Do you know what one of the greatest problems of prayer today is? It's not unanswered prayer. It is unasked prayer. And James tells us in his short epistle, you do not have because you do not ask. Now, don't fall into the erroneous way of thinking that somehow you divide the secular from the spiritual. Um, they are all the same to God. You should pray about everything. You should pray about a Bible study or to lead someone that you're hoping to share a word of testimony about, and you should pray for a parking spot. Everything is important to God. 
We are to pray without ceasing. You say, well, pastor, I pray about the big things. I don't usually pray about the little things. Let me ask you something. Is there anything big to an omnipotent, all-powerful God? There's nothing unimportant to God. It's all little to Him. I mean, there's nothing too small that God is not interested in if he goes to every sparrow's funeral, if he has the hairs on your head numbered. I don't know about you, but I love to hear the prayer of either a child or a new believer who hasn't learned all the lingo yet. They don't have all the jargon, all the cliches, and you just hear, among other things, their heart. And the problem for some of us is we've been educated beyond our own intelligence. And if you want to hear how sometimes we should pray, just listen to children to pray. Just listen to the new believer to pray. We always prayed every single night with our children. When we would drive to church, we would be teaching them conversational prayer. We'd split up the prayer request. Jeremy, you pray for the choir leader today. And Jordan, you pray for the nursery workers. And we'd go around the whole car and we'd pray for different things. And we'd pray for them at night. And, and, and we pray the same way with our grandchildren. And sometimes with our children via the internet and the accesses that we have where we can all be on one screen. I remember praying one particular night, my son Grant, there was something that he wanted to buy, but he didn't have the funds for it. He was just seven years old, so he decided to resurrect his cookie business, and he recruited his nine-year-old sister with her beautiful smile to sell the product. And on Monday night, before we went to bed, he said, Father, please help us to sell some cookies tomorrow. Well, on Tuesday morning, ever before he mixed up the batter and started, they started knocking on the doors, you know, to harass the neighbors. I mean, how can you turn down a kid? Well, Archie Brown, who at the time was one of my neighbors, he calls the house and he says, I'd like to buy some cookies, seven dozen. Well, no one had ever called the house before with an order and no one had ever ordered more than one or two dozen. Now, who do you suppose put that in Archie Brown's heart? I'll tell you who did. The God of heaven put that in his heart. And it's no accident that Jesus said, unless you become like a little child, you will never make it into the kingdom. Not childish, but childlike. You should try to lead your children to Christ, and you should teach them how to pray. But Jesus instructs us in this verse not just to ask, but notice he says to seek. And now there's a greater intensity. Some prayer you just ask, and it's done. God immediately answers. But there's some prayer that needs to be seeking prayer. And sometimes God makes us seek persistently to teach us to continue to trust him. And because of fellowship that he wants to have, God's not just interested in giving you an answer to your prayer. God enjoys your presence if you've met him. He wants you to walk with him and talk with him. And one way to cultivate that relationship is through seeking prayer. And sometimes we have to persist in seeking prayer because God's timing is perfect and he knows the best time from his understanding when it needs to be answered. And sometimes I think God makes us persist for the simple reason that we know that he was the one who answered. We've been seeking God, we've been asking God, and then he does it how many times have you prayed for something God answers and you don't even thank him? Look, when you've persisted in prayer, you'll thank God, 
When I was doing my graduate studies in seminary, there was a particular brother who sold his business to go to school. He was obeying the call of God in his life to become a pastor. And financially, things were very challenging for him and his family of six. And as was their custom every evening, he would ask his children, is there something that you guys want to pray about? And on one particular night, Timothy, the youngest of the four boys, said, Daddy, do you think that maybe we could pray that God would give me a new shirt. He said, of course, Timothy. And mom would write it down in the prayer journal, and she added next to it, size seven. By the way, I hope you know God loves to answer specific prayer, because when you pray specifically, you see God answer that this was his answer. Every night for over a month, When Timothy's turn came to pray, he would pray that God would give him a new shirt. And then one day, a clothing store owner there in the city of Dallas called mom and said, you know, I'm doing inventory, and we just finished our summer sale, and we're overstocked in some stuff, and I've got uh, some boys' shirts. It's only in one size. You think you could use them? She said, what size? size seven, <laughs> and she, he gave her 12 brand new shirts. Now, this mother, being as wise as she was, didn't just go stick them in a closet. Night came, asking God, don't forget, Dad, we need to pray for my new shirt. He said, Timothy, we don't need to pray for it. God has answered. He has. And she had those boys, one at a time, make all these trips And this kid had a stack of 12 brand new size seven shirts in front of him. He thought God had gone into the shirt business. Listen, do you teach your children how to pray? You need to, and you won't do that if you don't pray. Or do you just give it to them in this affluent society that we've been living in? Jesus taught we are to ask, we are to seek. But then he notes here in Matthew 7, 7, we are to knock. Knock, and it shall be open to you. Knocking prayer, I suppose, is the highest persistent kind of prayer. It's when you keep asking God until you know clearly that he has either said no, you just keep asking. Let me read to you a parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 11. Then he said to them, he's teaching them about prayer, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside, he answers and said, do not bother me. The door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs." Now, most of you know that in the Mideastern culture, and especially amongst the Hebrew people, it was unthinkable to turn away someone who needed food and lodging. So this man shows up at his friend's front door, and he says, James, may I stay in your home this evening? Why, John, we're happy to receive you. Come on in. It's kind of late, but we're glad you're here. Come in. Just make yourself comfortable. So James goes in, and he tells his wife, and he says, John's come here tonight. We need to feed him. We need to give him something to eat. She says, James, we don't have anything. We ate it all at dinner. Well, just give him some tea, and I'll I'll go next door and see if I can get some food. 
So she says, John, sit down. Let me prepare something for you. I'll give you something to eat. James goes next door. It's midnight. He starts knocking. No one answers. He knocks louder. No one answers. Who is it? Matthew, it's me, James. What do you want? I need three loaves of bread. Don't bother me. Do you know what time it is? Shalom, Matthew, I need some bread. James, give me a break. I'm in bed. Now remember, if you've ever seen even some of the ancient homes, we've toured a few on one of our trips in Israel. You know, quarters were tight. If you woke up one person, you typically woke up the whole family. Don't bother me, James. The kids are asleep. And if you wake them up, I'm in trouble. Listen, Matthew, a guest has shown up and we don't have anything to feed him. Just get up and give me three loaves. Oh, be quiet. I'm coming. I'm coming. I'm coming. Here, take these and get out of here. Now, he didn't do it because he was a friend, Jesus said. He gave him what he needed because he wouldn't take no for an answer. It was his persistence. Jesus' point is that the Father will respond to persistent prayer, not because he's bothered by your coming, but because of who he is. And when we persist with God in prayer, God will in his goodness express his answer in a perfect way for Jesus then says in verse 13, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Have you learned to pray expectantly, perseveringly? I'm reminded that God doesn't answer all prayer in the same way. In the case of Elijah, when he confronts the 450 prophets of Baal, he prays and instantly it's answered. But in our passage this morning, he's seeking persistently God in prayer. And when we come to the next prayer, he's going to ask for a request and God will refuse him. Now, for obvious reasons, God answered him immediately in verses 36 to 38. Without pleading, he just immediately answers. And for other obvious reasons, he doesn't immediately answer his prayer for rain. Look, there's not a one-size-fits-all kind of prayer request. Now, just quickly, beyond the passion and the persistence of prayer, there's the product, the product of his prayer. Verse 44, it came about at the seventh time that he said, behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand is coming up from the sea. He said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down so that the heavy rain does not stop you. Look, it hadn't rained for three and a half years. As soon as it came down, it was going to be a mud pit. And he didn't want Ahab's chariot to get stuck. So we read in verse 46, in a little while, the sky grew block with clouds and wind. And there was a heavy shower and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. That small cloud grew into a black sky. We had it yesterday where we lived in Seabrook. It started windy, and there's a few clouds, and it got black, and then the wind started blowing, and little limbs were coming down, and it poured, it let go, and then five minutes later, the sun was out. It was beautiful. This is no light drizzle. This is a downpour. In Elijah's day, the people were 
physically in drought, and they were spiritually in drought. And by comparison, America is in a spiritual drought. It's sad to see the state of our nation. We are witnessing, as I shared in a sermon many or eight weeks ago, is God angry with us? Yes, he is. God is angry with America. That may not sell and fill seats in Joel Olstein's church, but it's the truth of God. God is angry with the people that stiff-arm him and raise their fists. Look, you think we got trouble in America today. You haven't seen anything yet. Just stay at it, America, and things are going to get miserable. And there is a spiritual drought, and in, in one aspect of a spiritual drought in any culture, in the Israeli culture and in our culture, is when God withdraws the truth of his word. Remember in Saul's day, because of his disobedience, 1 Samuel 28 says, when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Due to Israel's disobedience in Asaph's day, he bemoaned, there is no longer any prophet. And due to the sin in Amos's day, he said, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. Scripture teaches that a withdrawal of God's word, that's what we got in all these seeker-sensitive, nonsensical churches. All this fluff and stuff, but no expository Preaching, there's a drought in America for the Word of God. Now, I recognize there's a plethora of Scripture in America since the development of the printing press, but there's a drought in the land for pastors to stand up and to teach the whole council of Scripture. And on a more personal level, you can sit even in a church like this where a pastor teaches the Word of God, but your soul will be starved spiritually if you do not have ears to hear it. You will not have a fresh word from God. And so preaching and teaching for some people has become tedious and tiresome, and we've had enough. Why'd you leave? The sermon was too long, Pastor. How pathetic that the heart is so cold that they cannot sit for one hour and hear the word of God. And so the drought breaks, the land is affected. Not only is the land affected, the man was affected. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah and he girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. Here's a map. You can see on this map, Jezreel is where the king and the queen live. It's about 18 miles away from Mount Carmel. And I want you to picture this situation. Ahab is in his chariot behind his choicest stallion, maybe stallions. And he's going at breakneck speed to outrun the rain, lest his chariot gets stuck. And Elijah pulls off his outer cloak and he takes off running and he hits passing gear and he goes right by Ahab's chariot. Ahab, see you down there in Jezreel. I love this guy. Those knees that had been bent in prayer and are running top speed in a marathon, 
There's a new dynamic in this man's life. This is yet another miracle as he's able to outrun a man's, a king's chariot. Now, you might be asking, why did God do this? I mean, God had already done an incredible display of work when he brought fire down from heaven and it not only ate up the sacrifice, but even the rocks were turned to dust. Why do this, comparatively speaking? It's a small miracle. So why does he have him running out in front of the chariot? It's really an expression of God's grace. He, as he follows this prophet down to Jezreel, he sees his back all the way, and this king is reminded that he should be following that prophet. This man who should have already fallen on his face in repentance, this man who listened to his wicked wife and promoted Baal worship, he should be following the prophet of God, but when we will see him next time, it's apparent that he's unresponsive. We'll see him next time in the devil's bedroom. Now, I can't think of a greater testimony that God could say of your life or mine than to say the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. The hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and that hand was unleashed through a clean heart, and a dependent heart is expressed in prayer. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And there's a principle here that great prayer brings great blessing, not because of the language of the prayer, not because of the length of the prayer, not because of the boldness of the prayer, but because it was passionate, persistent, unending prayer. And some of us have never gotten past first base. Now, if you're listening to me and you've never met Christ, if you don't have the assurance that heaven is your home, God may answer your prayer. He does answer the prayers of some unbelievers in Scripture, but all of his promises to answered prayer in both Testaments are given to his people. And if you've never found forgiveness, you can receive not pharisaical righteousness, but the righteousness that comes from God as a gift based on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and nothing that you can do. But you must change your mind about sin. If you don't see your sin and your self-centeredness and you wanting to be your own king and live your own way as a problem, you will never meet Jesus Christ in forgiveness. So today is the day of salvation. I invite you to call upon his name. Now, Holy Father, we thank you for what we've read and studied. Help us to have ears to hear and eyes to see. When we ask, is Community Bible Church a praying church? We really need to ask, am I a praying member? And so, my Father, I, I pray that what we are individually, we would become corporately a people that passionately seek you in prayer. Help someone today, Father, who's never met you and the forgiveness you offer to call upon Jesus in faith, amen.